I am Marty Strecker from Mackay, Queensland, Australia, and welcome to The Candid Frame. If you use Adobe Photoshop or Lightroom, you'll likely know Julian Cost. As a principal digital evangelist for Adobe, she has taught countless photographers the many ins and outs of the company's popular software. Whether it's at photo conferences or via online videos, Julian has helped photographers to understand and master these powerful applications. But Julian is also a dedicated photographer whose personal projects have culminated in several books, including Window Seat and Passenger Seat. The photographs from those first two books reflected the extensive time she spent on the road for Adobe. Rather than being frustrated by how such a hectic schedule limited her time to be creative, she found ways to leverage the time she did have to practice her love for photography. I think sometimes what can hold back photographers is that their personal projects are so grand that they become almost impossible to do because in their daily lives, you know, you can't go run off to another country every third Wednesday to experience some phenomenon or something like that. So while I do have projects like that, that I aspire to do at the same time, I'm always trying to weave in my projects to my daily life. Her experiences as a photographer have allowed her to become an exceptional teacher. She understands the challenges that any photographer faces when learning a new technology, be it hardware or software. But she also knows that gaining competency with these tools has to serve a greater end. I think in the beginning when you're first doing photography, I was so concentrated on the technique. Like just, just getting an image on the negative was a challenge, right? And then just getting a decent print was a challenge. And although you had an assignment to go photograph something, it was more about just trying to make an image. And so, um, you know, we would try with different film stocks and we had high contrast films. And so I was just learning all the technical. And I think that's why sometimes when people start photography, you know, my expectation is never to make a brilliant image. I want people to learn the tools so they don't have to think about the tools so that then they can think about the content. And I think at that point in my life, I wasn't thinking very much about the content. I was just trying to learn the tools. We'll talk to Julian about how growing up in a household with two creative parents helped shape her as a photographer and how she used photography to contend with her fear of flying. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Thank you for making time for me. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to finally have a chance to to talk to you. I've I've been in the audience when you've presented, but I don't think I've ever had a chance to formally speak with you. Well, it is great to talk with you. I I was listening to some of your podcasts, and I really appreciate the way you were doing one, and I think it was the one with the Lightroom one, where you were commenting on how looking at an entire shoot can really help people kind of connect the dots and see the relationships between things. Yeah. Because I think that's super important. We're so much of a shoot one, send it off to the ether, 
and not looking at bodies of work. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, for me, it's just the, the best way to, to sort of have an understanding of what you're doing as a photographer. When you're just looking at one image at a time, you don't gain any insight into the sort of the big picture of what you're doing. Especially when you're photographing for yourself, right? Because right. I mean, when I, I put together a book at the end of every year and it's like, okay, oh, so that's where I was and that's how I felt. And maybe this is how I can try to alter my behavior in location so I shoot better or... Isn't it interesting how you see the same kind of cyclical, at least I do, I see the same kind of patterns in my photography when I'm either traveling or feeling a certain way or under pressure or on vacation. So Yeah, because there's, there's so much about it that is subconscious, as purposeful as we can be in terms of yeah. what we think we're photographing. There's so much that's really under the surface, and it's only through the editing process, not by, by, not by which I mean manipulating the images and software. It's the actual editing in terms of culling, deciding which images are going to be part of a project, a book, or, or gallery selection. And every time I sit down and do that, it's really fascinating what I discover that was completely unconscious. I couldn't agree more. And it's the, it's the looking at the ones that didn't work as well that you're like, oh, wait a minute. I do that very consistently and it does not work. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting about, you, about your story, and I'd like to talk a little bit about it before we start getting into the, the recent project, is your, your mother was a graphic artist and your dad was a um, amateur photographer. I think he was an engineer. Exactly. So, so you grew up in a household where both parents were were creative. And I know you don't have anything to compare it to because that's just what you grew up with. But but tell me some of the things that you observed as as a young kid in, in terms of the creative process, especially since your parents are practicing two different arts to express themselves. Well, okay. So like you said, my mom was doing design work. So that to me is a very additive process, right? She was painting and she was silk screening and she has an amazing mind for breaking apart objects into shapes. Cause that to me is very foreign. Like I, when I try to use Adobe Illustrator to draw, you have to think about shapes and how they go together. And I, mm-hmm. I think more in pictures. So what I really learned from my mother was every single object that she put, whether it was in a painting or a design, it was placed there with intent. And it's only recently that I've come to that realization that that's why a lot of my photography, I think, is so minimalistic, is because I'm only trying to include the things that really help reinforce the narrative or tell the story and not include a bunch of stuff that doesn't. And I see that in how my mother worked. And how about your dad? So my dad uh, started, you know, he was an engineer and he comes from it very scientific view, you know, how things work and the zone system and printing and he's super technical. And so taking that and, you know, my mom, well, she's technical. I mean, you have to be technical to, to know like how to register your silk screens and stuff. But the combination of the two of them was a huge benefit because I learned that regardless if you come from the technical side or the creative side, you need to cross over you, you in order to make a, an interesting image and you need to learn your tools. So you need to be creative on the one hand so that you can express yourself and you have something to say, but you have to, for me, it's very important. If I want to recreate what I make, then I need to know the tools. So it's always been very important for me to master the tools so that I don't have to think about them, whether that's the camera or the software or whatever it is I'm using. And my dad was really good at mastering those tools, um, but they can't be, that's not all of it. 
you know, there also has to be that spark, that creative idea, that, um, that impact of something, you know, you're trying to get a message apart, even if the message is just, this is where I am and this is what I see and this is beautiful and I want to share that. What did you find yourself gravitating to creatively when you were, when you were young? Oh my gosh, my mom had me involved in like every art project you can ever imagine. <laughs> so whether, <laughs> she was an art docent in the schools. And so, oh my gosh, so anything... I love stuff that had to do with like yarn or painting or collage or cutting stuff up and pasting it together. It really didn't matter. It was just all fun. You know, you talked about in terms of learning the technical and a lot of people, especially photographers, are fixated with that. But a big part of really being able to discover who you are as an artist is being able to be a little freewheeling, to not be so tethered to the technical. And we kind of lose that when we're young i mean as we go older we have it when we're young naturally but it, get, it gets lost did having two parents that were creative sort of keep you sort of tethered to that that you didn't get so married to trying to do it right quote unquote well i think one of the great things is when i was learning photography and my father was definitely studying you know the kind of very technical ansel adams this is how you work with film this is how the chemistry works you know, I was in my teens. So the, the only thing I wanted to do was take a picture that was different from my dad. So even okay. though I was learning the technical, there was always the thing in the back teenager, like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. And that did kind of force me to not become a carbon copy. And I think that's probably, I probably carried that with me through adulthood because while I like to look at other people's work, and certainly you can use that as a jumping off point, I don't want to make work like everyone else. Uh, were you into other things? I, I think I heard that you were played volleyball. I did. Yeah, I played volleyball. It was uh, great. I loved sports. In high school? In high school and then in college. I always thought that I wanted to be a sports therapist. That's what I went to school for. But Well, I really wanted to be a photographer, but uh, my parents, and I totally understand this, they were like, hmm. Maybe, maybe since you don't like taking pictures for other people, maybe a better job <laughs> path for you might be something that's not photography. So I, I went to school for psychology instead. And, they, and there was something about body mechanics? Oh, yeah. So that was the sports therapy. Like I thought I wanted okay. to be a sports therapist. And then I got a little burnt out on sports. And so I decided to do the, the photography instead. So I went back to school after, after I graduated. And then you got a degree in photography. Yeah. Okay. So how'd you end up at Adobe? I started in technical support. So it's this, I, I really think I use my psychology every day. I think psychology is a wonderful major and area of study. And, and the, you know, the study of human behavior has always really fascinated me. Like I'm, I'm very fascinated on why people um, pay attention to the things they pay attention to and why they don't pay attention to other things. And I'm also fascinated by the fact that, you know, you can take 10 people, whether it's a class of you know, photographers or people going to the movie theater and they're all sitting in the, like the same row or they're all standing in the same location and they all take different photographs or they all take away something different from the movie just because we're all different, unique individuals. And that has always really fascinated me. I did eight years tech support uh, for Nikon. So um, I was on that 1-800 number down in Torrance answering uh, questions about equipment. So though I did not get a uh, technology, I mean a psychology degree, I felt like I deserved one after after being on the phone for that. And I, but I think that the value of it beyond photography, 
was adeptness, adeptness at listening, which is something that benefits me now. And with you, you're, you're, commun- you're having to communicate a lot in terms of sort of the technical. So how did that experience and tech support, and also your interest in psychology, sort of help you to, to define the way in which you communicate about software and photography? I think the experience was phenomenal for me because it just showed me that everyone, well, well first of all, when you, when you call tech support, obviously things are not going smoothly. <laughs> so, so there's a sense of anxiety, right? And if everything, if you knew everything, then you wouldn't have to call tech support. So it's very difficult to ask for help about something when you don't even know what to call it. Right. And so what I learned from speaking to so many people on the phone and tech support was that you have to really, you, like you said, you have to listen because what they're asking might really not be the issue. So you, you kind of have to work backwards and you know, it's not their fault that they're not asking. I say in like quotes, the right question, but they don't know what question to ask. And so just having empathy with people, because I mean, I'm sure you've been in, I've been in that situation. You, Something goes wrong, whether it's the computer, whether it's your refrigerator. You know, I, I don't know what it's called. I, I, I was trying to change a lamp. I don't know all the terms in electricity, you know. So you just have to be a little bit empathetic and try to figure out what the, the issue is. Yeah, by the time I left that job, if there was anybody difficult on the phone and I could hear it, I, said, I would say, send it to me. Because I like the challenge of seeing whether or not I could turn it around. Right, and that, for me, sort of. Yeah, and that for me was what made kept the job interesting for me. At first, when I started, I was very intimidated about somebody who would be angry or frustrated. And then, as I just as I began to learn that it was just about being able to get past their frustration, their anger, and to let them know that I'm listening and that I'm interested in solving their problem, even if I wasn't able to give them the solution that they had hoped for, just the fact that I had listened and showed genuine concern often was enough to sort of turn it around. And then there was always that 1% that we called, uh, I forget what the name we called it, that you, there was nothing you could possibly do. Even if you fixed the problem, <laughs> they would not be happy. But that's okay too, right? Because sometimes people just need to vent. Like they've reached that point where they just need to vent. And I'm totally right. fine with that because there's nothing better. Like you're saying, there's nothing better than like helping someone solve a problem. And I think that's why I've enjoyed my career at Adobe is because I do have so many opportunities to try to explain something that, you know, look, I, I'm not super technical, at, at, you know, down deep inside. It's just that I have a disadvantage. I get to see the software as it goes through development. So I get a longer time period to try to understand it and to try to kind of translate what the engineers have created into the right words for, you know, it could be a photographer, it could be a designer, it could be someone doing forensics. Everybody you know, like there's corporate speak and there's photography speak and everybody has these little kind of mini vocabularies within their industry. And so I've always found it very challenging and, and really satisfying to be able to, to take something and break it down and explain it so that someone else can then take it and run with it. Because, I mean, I love the fact, remember, if I said, if I said you know, we want to master our tools, there's nothing more frustrating for me to watch than a photographer who has a brilliant idea but can't execute it because they don't have the skills. That must have been a challenge, especially because you started in 92. And I can only imagine that 
the difficulty in being able to communicate a software that was still relatively new to an audience that was just starting to sort of adopt it. And there were certain photographers that were there early on, but as time went on, there were a lot more people. And the point that you made, especially with respect to Photoshop, is that there were so many different people using it in so many different ways that it wasn't just photographers, it was graphic designers and a whole myriad of different people who were discovering this new tool and finding some way of sort of adopting it. So how did you sort of learn the, the language that you needed to utilize in order to communicate with such a diverse group of people because even though it's the same software everyone's sort of using it in a different way so i think just just traveling to different events and sitting down and getting to know someone that's in that industry and really having a deeper conversation because part of my job also is to to talk to customers and if you think back you know in 92 and 95 and even early you know 2000 there weren't all these forums online there there wasn't that kind of opportunity to give us feedback so I would always try, it was always a two-way street for me. Like, here I am, I'm going to speak in your industry, but if I didn't know anything about your industry, like, say it was scanning my microscopy or something, I go, I want to make this as relevant as I can. Can I, can you put me in touch with someone who, you know, I can speak for an hour and maybe they could explain to me, you know, what are the issues you're having so that I make sure that I focus on those things or Say, for example, if it was forensic imaging, you know, I don't want to go and talk about things that they're never going to use. That's just a waste of time. So it benefits everyone if I could work with someone from the conference or, you know, the agency or whoever I was going to go talk to. If they could send someone or we could at least talk on the phone and we could talk through some demo files and we could talk through maybe some video clips that they were trying to enhance. And that way I would know what the issues were. I'd have a little bit of time to go and ask the engineers if I didn't know, like, how would you solve it? Have you heard of this? Have you seen this? And then that way I could give a better, more directed and targeted presentation. So how did your photography evolve and change as a result of you having not only access to, to the software, but having access to the very engineers who were designing it? It's amazing. They're incredible. I, I mean, they're so brilliant. You know, I, I, I feel like, yes, I get, I get a lot of, you know, kudos and attention because I get to go out and speak about Photoshop but I mean, I, I didn't make it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just have this lovely job where I get to go talk about all this cool stuff that all these really, really smart engineers are making. Your first project that came to my attention was uh, as a result of you doing all that traveling. When you started photographing outside of the planes, you came up with a, a really lovely, lovely book. But talk to me about the inception of those images and why you ended up making those kinds of photographs. Well, I am afraid to fly. It all really kind of comes down to that. So remember that dad that's an engineer? He always told yes. me like even metal, like all metal has stress points, which didn't really help. So um, I learned that it, it was one, I was afraid to fly. And two, I found myself either, you know, going to the airport, being in a plane, going to a hotel, going to a conference room going back to the hotel, getting in the plane and coming home, right? So I was traveling the majority of my life and I just couldn't find a project. And I'm, I've always been one to have little personal projects going on or little self-assignments, whatever we want to call them. And I couldn't find anything in those locations that I wanted to photograph because it all seemed very transient and I didn't have a lot of time to get out and go photograph. And if I did, maybe, you know, it was at two o'clock in the afternoon or something for one hour. So that's not, I'm not 
that's not the space in which I photograph well. So it happened to be that just sitting on the plane, if I started taking photographs, one, um, it was beautiful. It was something I could just sit and do. Um, there was no one interrupting me. So I was kind of in my own space in my head. And also when you put, when you, when I put the camera between me and the ground, like all of a sudden I'm not the participant, I'm more the observer. And so I can sit back and it actually relaxed me and helped me fly. Ah, okay. So it gave you a sense of control. Exactly. You you had something to focus on. Now I'm watching this world go by through a little camera, right? It's it's not me in the plane like, oh my gosh, I'm scared. We're turning or there's turbulence. Did you produce those other photographs where you're looking straight down, which you could only get like, I guess, from a helicopter or a plane with an open door? You've done that, right? I have, but my when I first published Window Seat, now I've I've updated it as an ebook. But when I first published the book, and that was the body of work called Window Seat, those were all shot from commercial flights. It's just that um, one, you know, I kind of scoot up in my seat and try to get the best angle looking down. Um, but also, you know, I did have Photoshop, so I could correct some of those angles, <laughs> the perspective. Right. But the fear of flying completely leave you? Because no. it's one thing to be in a commercial plane, and it's another thing to be in a, in a flying vehicle with an open door. Yes, but for me, I think it's just a control thing. So I don't think I'll ever, unless I'm, maybe if I ever became a pilot, then I might have less fear. But while I'm a passenger, I think I will always be afraid of flying. And I, it's just, it's totally irrational. I mean, uh, people have tried to talk to me about it because I understand it's irrational, but it's just a lack of control. I know, but the, the ones that you did in with, with the open, with the open door, was it a helicopter? Is that both a helicopter and small, small aircraft? Okay. So if you have a fear like that, not many people would take it to that next level, right? In a commercial plane, the doors are closed. You know, you have a relative good expectation that nothing can go wrong. You remove the door, even if you have a harness, you know, you, there's a little more risk involved in, in your own mind. So, so tell me about the willingness to, to say, okay, I'm scared. This increases the reasons why I'm scared, probably exponentially, but I'm going to do it anyway in order to get the photograph. So walk me through that. I guess it's like when you say, so sometimes if you're working on a really difficult project and you... I feel this way when I do my digital composites. At some point, the frustration of not making them is bigger than the frustration of making them. So at some point, I wanted to have more control over what I photograph, right? Like I was trying to pick flights when I would book my flights and I'd try to pick, you know, not just the seat, but also the side of the plane and the time of day that I was flying and all those things. And there just became a point where I was like, I want more control. And the only way I'm going to get more control is if I'm not on a commercial flight. And if I'm not on a commercial flight, well, then I don't want the door on because I want more freedom to shoot because it's now all of a sudden it's very time sensitive and cost prohibitive. And I don't, you just, I just wanted to do it more than I, I wanted the images and I wanted the experience more than I was afraid. I guess, because at some point, the, the, I mean, I'm still afraid when I go up there, but I wouldn't miss it. I wouldn't. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that the, the, the feeling of frustration of not getting what you want surmounts whatever fear you have. Yeah, you just have to. I just have to compartmentalize it and put it in a little box and be like, yep, I'm afraid. Yep, I'm going to be afraid. 
but this is going to be so awesome. I have to do it. I would regret. Yeah. I don't want to regret not doing things because I'm Yeah, afraid. I think the, 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 the saddest mistake too many people make is they feel like they have to get rid of the fear first before they can do it, before they can give themselves permission to do it. Whereas I think maybe, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the fact is, is after you do it, then the fear can subside. Or diminish. Because yeah. as you said, the fear never completely goes away. No, but it's totally worth it. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it's like every time I have that fear returns, but I take the action to get past it, it reinforces itself to the point that, oh, yeah, the fear's there. But I know that if I take the action, I'll get through it okay. And I'll be able to get to where I want to be. That's it. That's, not, that's exactly it. I think you, you said it. You definitely said it better than I did. And it, it's not just the fear of flying, right? It's, it's for anything. If you're afraid to approach someone to take a portrait, the same, the same thing as you just said. You, you just have to push yourself to kind of do it. So you do composite. I do. And, and you mentioned your, your mother may have been part of a, in, that inspiration. But tell me about your initial forays into taking disparate images and finding ways of putting them together. So you're right. My mom had a lot to do with it because we were always cutting up stuff and pasting it together. And I worked, when I got my degree in psychology, then I ended up working at a medical imaging company. And then I also got a job at a one-hour photo place. And so that made it very inexpensive as I was going back to school to be able to develop my Chrome and make prints and stuff. And I started even then, like I think my first assignment for in my photography classes, I would take images and cut them up and just like print a black and white image, but then print it in color and cut them apart and make part of it color and part of it black and white. So it was kind of a natural transition to me. I, I loved the photography classes where you could like where the print wasn't the end, like where the print was kind of a starting point for something else, whether you could draw on it or hand color or paint or put wax on top of it. I liked taking it a little bit. I don't know, maybe my original images were too boring. (laughs) And so I needed to embellish them somehow. But to me, they were very sterile and I needed to, I wanted to add a little bit of life to them. And I did that by either using multiple photos or, or some other kind of, creating some kind of mark on them, whether it was paint or whatever. So what what do you think was missing from those singular photographs? You said that it was missing life. Can you sort of quantify what, what you felt was lacking from your more straightforward photographs? I think in the beginning when you're first doing photography, you're, I was so concentrated on the technique. Like just, just getting an image on the negative was a challenge, right? And then just getting a decent print was a challenge. And Although you had an assignment to go photograph something, it was more about just trying to make an image. And so, um, you know, we would try with different film stocks and we had high contrast films. And so I was just learning all the technical. And I think that's why sometimes when people start photography, you know, my expectation is never to make a brilliant image. I want people to learn the tools so they don't have to think about the tools so that then they can think about the content. And I think at that point in my life, I wasn't thinking very much about the content. I was just trying to learn the tools. And you felt that the, by combining these different images, that was your way of being able to, to bridge that gap. Yeah, because I think I kind of knew, like when I was done, I was like, well, okay, I have a decent image, de- decently exposed, decently printed, but it doesn't have any emotional impact. So what can I do? So how would you, tell me about the images that you would find, were they part of a, 
singular shooting session and then you put them together? Or were they images that had different locations? They were shot during different time periods. What, what did that look like? Yeah, they were all over the place. So I might have a picture of a building because the assignment was an architectural assignment. So I'd take a picture of a building, print it in black and white. It would be kind of cool if we could see through the building to the moon behind it. <laughs> or, or it would look better if I could composite, or maybe I did a black and white of, you know, maybe we had a, a garden scene or something. I'd be like, yeah, but maybe we need a little splash of color in there. So I would cut out other flowers from other pictures that, yeah, absolutely were taken at different times, different places. And just, I just paste them on there or try to put them together with a little tissue paper and glue and <laughs> anything. They, I have to tell you, they were pretty horrible. <laughs> I have two of them. And every once in a while, if I'm feeling really brave and comfortable in front of an audience, I'll be like, this is how I started. <laughs> so what was so bad about them when you look back at them? Well, the technology we have today to blend images together just seamlessly is so fantastic, right? And back then, I mean, they looked like they were cut and pasted okay. because they were. <laughs> But there's, there's, a, there's a big difference when you're working with tactile materials and putting them together as opposed to what you do digitally. As seamless as you can make them now in digital, there is something about working with materials with your hands and moving them around and gauging like relationships and things like that. Like in Lightroom, for example, whenever I'm um, editing my images down, I will use the book module to see how images play off of each other on the page to give me a sense of of what the body of work will look like. Not necessarily because I'm intending to publish them in sort of book form, but sometimes I need that that com- comparison in order to assess different aspects of, of the photographs relative to another. But when it comes to the way that you're working, how about sort of assessing which images play off of each other when you're looking at them in terms of a a screen. How did you sort of transition from working with your hands to working on the computer and a keyboard and a Wacom tablet and whatever else you were using? Well, I will say that I still do sometimes sketch. I do sketch out some ideas. And that's because when I, when I try to teach compositing or talk about it, I try to, one, I simplify it. I say, okay, so let's, let's take compositing just like you would look at any other photograph that you're taking um, especially if it's street photography or editorial, like you're going to set up a stage, right? That's going to be your background, your scene, and then you're going to put a main character in it. And then you might add secondary characters to help tell the story or push it along the narrative. And I, I have them kind of think of that. And then for me personally, because I find that if I start on the computer, a lot of times I will spend a lot more time doing things that ultimately I didn't benefit from. And what I mean by that is it's so easy to zoom in and work on details of a composite. And then when you back out and you realize that you've spent maybe an hour and a half on it, you go, oh, my main character isn't right. Whereas if I took 10 minutes and I'm a horrible, I'm, I'm terrible at drawing. Like these are not good drawings, but if I just even if I have, okay, let's say I know I want to put wings on something. Right. All right. So I want to put some wings on. Well, I've got five images of wings. I will just literally sit there and get some graph paper and just, or just regular plain paper and just break it up into six different segments 
and draw the figure six times. And you can even like, I can even like use the screen. Like I could zoom out on just the figure and trace it six times and then take the wings and just look at the shapes and draw the wings on the piece of paper. And within 10 minutes, I'll know like, well, these three wings are definitely out and that could be it. And then, Ooh, if I, if I off center it a little bit, then I could put some clouds over here. And so I, I've got the concept in my mind and then I haven't wasted, it's not that I'm wasting time, but I haven't spent all that time maybe, you know, with a pen tool going in thinking, well, these are the wings I'm going to use and then spending an hour and then realizing it's not the element that speaks to me in that composite. Does that make sense? I've, yeah. Yeah. But I've heard, I've heard you say that the images that you end up using are not so much images that you created with the specific intent of including him in a composition, that they're more images that you produce just as you're traveling, as you're moving from day to day. They're not really uh, made with a, a particular composite in mind. And for me, that's really interesting in terms of just making photographs of whatever you sort of encounter without having that intent. But then in my mind, it creates the... The, the challenges of that's a lot of photographs that you have to sort of make and then to have to sort of organize and reference as you're trying to put them together. Because as you said, you sometimes the images may be images that you took months or years ago. And for me, trying to remember what I shot, <laughs> you know, even sometimes last week can be like, so the idea of, of, of working the way that you do for me adds a, a complexity just in terms of organizing and reference that kind of alludes to me. So I just wonder how you, you do it. So I'm, I'm thinking about two images that I'm looking at in my office right now. And one of them, uh, the main subject is this tree and another one, the main subject are these wings and broken mirror that's on the ground. And so when I go out and so my elements that I get, I'm looking for probably one of three or four things. I'm either looking for the scene. So I'm out in the landscape or I'm in the city and I'm like, Oh, that's a cool scene. I don't know what I will ever do with it, but I, I want that scene. I just, it's like, it's like a painter. They just, they just got another color. They're right. just going to store it. Right. And then I'll look around and say, Oh my gosh, that is a really cool um, tree. So I'm going to capture the tree. I'm not sure what I'm going to use it for, but it evokes some kind of emotional response in me. So it looks haunting. It looks um, beautiful. It looks lush. It looks whatever it is. It's enough to make me stop and go, wow, that, that did something to me. That caused some kind of reaction to me, in me, so I'm going to photograph it. And then to manage all of these things. Oh, the other two things I'd be looking for is like little supporting elements. Like, huh, well, that's interesting. That could reinforce something else. So if I take this huge tree, you know, what goes with the tree? Is, is it an acorn that goes with the tree? Is it, is it another little element like a, like a bird bath? Or, I, I don't know just whatever it is I'm taking, I'm always thinking like that could be a supporting element. And then I take a lot of textures as well. But when I get back in order to help manage these, I do keyword. I just keyword with maybe two or three keywords. So it's just, just the subject. That's it. And sometimes I only keyword, you know, my one stars or better because it's just, I have a lot of photographs, like you said. But what I also do is I have a collection set in Lightroom Classic that's just called, um, you know, elements or digital composite could be's. And there's really four categories in there. So there's, there's textures, there's locations, there's elements, and then there's kind of secondary elements. So that when I get back from a shoot and I've got 3000 images, 
I can just quickly scan through them and go like, all right, so these six would be really interesting backgrounds. I'm just going to throw them in that collection for now. Even though I might not work on that for years, that helps me so that when I do want to sit down, I don't have to go through all of my images. I can just say, well, look, I've got all these ideas and look at these primary elements that I've, I've really wanted to make an image around this tree or this leaf or this person or whatever it is. And I can quickly go and, and look at what I have and then assemble them. In just two weeks, I'll be in Washington, D.C. to attend the Focus on the Story photo conference, where I'll be leading a panel and teaching a two-day photography workshop. And in June, I'll be back in Los Angeles teaching my weekend street photography workshop at the Los Angeles Center of Photography. In August, I'll be in Vancouver, Canada, teaching a weekend workshop with my friend and one of my favorite photographers, Olaf Staba, which is going to be amazing because if you know anything about Olaf and me, you know you're going to be in for an amazing weekend of photography and so much more. And lastly, George Nobechi and I will be conducting a complete cultural experience in Tokyo, Japan in December, which will include not just photography, but food, culture, and so much more. It's going to be a very personal experience of one of the world's great cities. To find out more about these events, please visit the website or click on the links in the show notes. I hope to see some of you there. You have a series that you did from photographs made from the passenger side of a car. Yeah. <laughs> and those are very different from the ones you did from outside of the window because you uh, introduced the, the motion, the movement of the car, creating sort of a blur, moving into a form of abstraction. Was that work happening in parallel with the compositing work that you were doing or was this sort of a transitional body of work? So I'm, I'm always mm-hmm. trying to do as, as many projects as I can. I always have multiple and I don't know if you want to call them projects or bodies of work or self-assignments. I always, I have a ton on the back burner. Like I, 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 I have a little motto, you know, don't make excuses, make time. Okay. <laughs> so I'm always trying to figure out, okay, so if I want to learn a new technology or if I want to explore something with my camera or if I want to explore a new technique, I'll just give myself a small assignment. And I think sometimes what can hold back photographers is that their personal projects are so grand that they become almost impossible to do because in their daily lives, you know, you can't go run off to another country every third Wednesday to experience some phenomenon or something like that. So while I do have projects like that that I aspire to do, at the same time, I'm always trying to weave in my projects to my daily life. And so I can see that with the window seat, with the aerial photography, right? I mean, that's what I was doing in my, in my life. It wasn't that I thought, oh, I want to become an aerial photographer. It was, how do I stay creative in a job that I have that's taking me on the road all the time? How do I stay creative? Well, let's look for some kind of creative outlet. So every other year, I was also finding that I was going to the East Coast and taking like an eight-hour drive one way and an eight-hour drive the other way. So that's at least 16 hours in the car. Well, that to me is a perfect opportunity because what else am I going to do for 16 hours in the car? I'm not driving. I'm obviously the passenger. But how do I make use of that time? How do I take a personal project 
that I want to do and bring it into my life as opposed to something I always have to go to. Does that, no, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. No, because I'm primarily known as, as a street photographer, but as of late, um, I don't, because I'm caring for a, an elderly parent, I don't have the flexibility of just being going out to shoot. So I've been, I always have my camera, but as of late when I'm running errands, I'm making photographs. I'm working on a project where I'm documenting my mother-in-law living with us. So it's like, yes, I can't photograph what I used to photograph as abundantly as I did, but because I still need to create, I'm finding things that are accessible so that I can keep that muscle going because without it, I would go absolutely crazy. I had to send my camera in because I dropped it and I'm just chomping at the bit. I'm looking at all this work by all these other people and I'm just going, can't get back fast enough. <laughs> I, I understand it, but it is, it's, don't, don't you feel it is helpful to, to get these other projects and especially with the technology thing, because I am always, you know, it takes me a while to, to learn. I'm sure you know your camera better than I know mine. So I'm always trying to form a better relationship with it so that it, it doesn't master me so that I can use it. And that's what that passenger seat project was all about was, you know, I, I, I didn't really know that much about, um, you know, longer exposures and panning the camera. And, and I learned a ton with that. I learned a ton about my camera and, um, yeah, so it was a great project all around. Plus it was just fun. And, and I like to put little parameters on it. Like I had this rule, there were no go backs. So I couldn't, like if I missed something, if we drove by a house that had a really cool ghost hanging from the tree or a pumpkin because it was Halloween, if I missed it, I missed it. Like it wasn't that kind of project that was supposed to be fun and spontaneous. And I think a lot of times we're so serious and we take out that element of play and that makes, like, I don't want to always be this struggling artist. If I want to struggle, I'll do my composites. If I want to go out and make kind of a fun, straight image in nature where I'm enjoying myself and the solitude that I gain from it, I, I want to introduce some play and, and, and I learn more when, when I play. I'm sure it surprises some people for Julian Koss to say she's not a tech person considering <laughs> she's a, a Photoshop evangelist. But I've heard you say that, yes, you're an evangelist, you teach Photoshop and Lightroom, but that doesn't mean you know everything about this, the software. And I think that you probably encounter a lot of people who feel like they can't do whatever work they're aspiring to do because they don't know the software well enough. So what, what's your response when you hear that, considering you know what we're talking about, about all these excuses why we can't create work, but there comes a point where you have to do it despite whatever perceived limitations you think you may have? I think that, well, I think it was, it was much easier for me because I grew up with Photoshop as it developed. I think today someone just stepping in to a computer for the first time and launching Photoshop is like, wow, there's a lot of stuff here. I mean, there were only like five panels and maybe 10 tools when I started with Photoshop, right? In the beginning. So as it, as I've grown, or as it's grown, I've grown. So yes, it can be daunting. But at the same time, like I tell people, well, don't try to learn it on Friday afternoon when you have a four o'clock deadline. You know, go learn it doing something that you want to do, something that you're passionate about something that will push you, whether it's, um, you know, maybe you follow someone on Instagram and you've taken screenshots and 
You just want to make your image, you know, have that same feeling that, that they're doing. Like, just try that and experiment around with it and play with it. And, you know, I probably sat on the couch last night for two hours just with my iPad, just playing with, um, you know, we, we announced uh, Photoshop for the iPad is in beta and stuff. So I was just playing with it. And at the end of the night, like, I didn't have any expectations that I would make this wonderful piece of art. I just needed to touch all the tools. I just needed to see what they did and what they were about and how I could push them. And, and so while I think it's really important to master the tools, you, you also just need to master the tools that you need to know. And most people don't need to know all of Photoshop. They just need to know the portion they need. Unfortunately, it's not the same portion for every person. (laughs) So let's talk about your, your your latest project, the, the color series. Tell me about that. How, how How did it come to your mind to do it? So how did it come about? So it came about because I was noticing, um, which is something I know you do when you're talking about how you look at your bodies of work and whether it's in Lightroom in the book module or, or whether, you know, I still make, I still make a lot of uh, just proofs of my work when I'm trying to, after I go somewhere and I'm trying to cull the images down. And what I was noticing when I was looking at these prints was that, well, it just occurred to me that when I was in certain locations, I was making much better photographs than other locations and I thought okay it's not just as simple as the location it's not like I made in two days this it's a very small body of work maybe 10 images that's okay with me in Berlin and I was thinking wow how did I do that in two days of walking around on a weekend whereas you know I understand okay I spent you know a week in Antarctica my expectations were much higher there that I would create a body of work but why was it then when I went to, say, the U.S. Virgin Islands, I had a week there and I hardly made any images that I found to be compelling or impactful. So I was trying to compare all of these different locations that I'd shot, which, you know, it, it could be portrait sessions. It doesn't have to be locations that you go to. It could be anything. But why did I make much better, more successful, impactful images in certain locations than other? That's what I started asking myself. And I know it seems very obvious, but to me, it was kind of the first time that it dawned on me just how much impact color can have in, a, in tying together a body of work. So the images are not straightforward photographs. They're strips uh, of a number of photographs, which collectively create a unique color color pattern that is reflective of your experience at those locations. So how did you determine the number of photographs and what were you looking for in those photographs to discover whether or not they would work in the way that you imagined them? Okay. So what I decided was I would just do this small personal project because I've I've actually never felt that I was very good with color. And I think that unfortunately, I think I actually am good with color, but what I'm not good with are bright colors. Um, I'm an introvert. I am not an extrovert. So to me, a lot of bright colors are very loud. To me, just like like a sound would be loud. So if you can imagine, um, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere, like I've been speaking at a, at a conference and there's a, a air conditioning on and all of a sudden it goes off and the whole room just goes like, oh, 
to me. Like it just breathes the sigh of relief. Or if you've ever been somewhere and it's just really brightly colored for me, it's just too much stimulus for me. So I've always thought I wasn't good at color, but what it, what I think now is just that I'm not good at bright colors. So anyway, getting back to the project, I thought, okay, so when I'm in these certain locations, if color is such an important part or component of my physical well-being, like how the environment impacts me as the photographer, because I hadn't really thought about that either. I'd always thought about how color impacts the photograph that I'm making, whereas really it's how does color affect me while I'm photographing. That's what I decided I wanted to study. So I took this idea and I said, all right, well, I'm going to work backwards from the end of the project. So I'm going to define it as I'm going to take 25 locations throughout the world and I'm going to go revisit those folders in Lightroom and I'm going to pick 25 or sorry, I'm going to pick 50 images from each of those 25 locations, which I feel best represent the color of that location. And I started just slicing a segment from each of those images and putting them together but it was too jarring and there was too much detail. So then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to make these into more purely color-based images. So I still took a slice, but I, I blurred the image first. So now I've got just a, you know, I used the blur gallery and I added a path blur and just a, um, a vertical path. And from there, then I would select the segment of each photograph that I thought best represented the color in that place. And then I took all 50 of those little slices and stitched them together in order to create a panorama. Tell me, tell me a little more about the selection process, because you just said that you have an aversion to bright, saturated colors. And I suppose that you have a sort of favor, more muted colors. But if you're trying to stay true to what that experience was as you were shooting, how do you sort of eliminate that natural bias that you sort of recognized that you have. Okay, so that was the biggest problem with the, the project in my mind is that I started off this project saying, I am going to make a definitive color palette for this location based on the time that I was there. And, and while I can do that, yes, I believe every location that I went to has a color palette, um, the color palette that I create is far from being objective, right? So it has to do with obvious external factors, like when were you there? And what did you decide to shoot? Did you shoot during the day? Did you shoot during the night? Did you go to the park? Did you stay in the high rise area of town? Then you have all the personal biases of what exactly did you photograph? So you were in the city. What did you photograph in the city? You were in the, the park. What did you photograph in the park? Did you photograph the trees? Did you photograph the people? And then you also then have to say, okay, well now there's additional subjective biases, right? So what, when I picked those 50 images, that's completely subjective of what I thought best represented it. It's, it's, about, it's what I remember it as, and we all know our memories aren't necessarily accurate, right? So, and then on top of that, then, you know, there's, there's the discretionary, even after I've picked 50 images, now I'm only picking a segment of them. And then I'm gonna arrange them in a panorama and I can reposition each one of the different segments. So it's completely objective, but I still concluded from this little project because I gave myself six weeks to do it. And I just thought, all right, at the end of six weeks, I'm going to have these 25 locations. And I found some of the locations, it was even painful for me to pick 50 images because I knew that those really bright colors 
best represented that location, but they were really hard for me to work with. And I, I was, I was overwhelmed in the panoramas thinking like, Oh my gosh, these bright yellows and oranges and pinks, like how do I even arrange them? And so that whole exercise, like sometimes an exercise where you're really frustrated and you find that something's really difficult, it's telling you something, right? It's, it was telling me, Hey, you don't really like bright colors. You like muted, saturated colors. So why, what, like, if you don't like the way it feels when you hit your head against the wall, stop hitting your head against the wall. Stop forcing yourself to say, I have to make these photos because they're beautiful, bright colors. And that's what people do. You go, um, no, I could turn around and I could look for something calmer and that might make me calmer and then I might make better photographs. So when you chose the, the strip, that segment of each photograph, did you do something to those images to take them further into abstraction before you put them together? Or was that after the fact? I did blur them all. But that was before you put them, you started, so you blurred them first, looked at how they looked in terms of a color palette, chose a segment, and then started compiling them. Right. Okay. Right. And so for within each blurred image, I tried to choose something that best represented that location. So whether it was a Tory gate in Japan or um, something, you know, from the White Sands, New Mexico, if it was a little sliver of a, a plant or something, I wanted to make sure that I had a good representation of the colors that I thought represented that location. And, and, and even if they were colors that I didn't, that I, that aren't my favorite color palette, because I like muted colors. And, and the blur you applied was not was not uniform across the images. You, they were subjective to each individual photograph. No, it, it actually it was uniform. So I okay. just wanted to blur it so that I, it was reduced to pure color and there were no forms left in there. You said that you gave yourself six weeks. Why put a, a, a time frame on it? Oh, because, I, because all my projects take as much time as I will give them. And I, <laughs> okay. I have to limit them somehow. Like, so I, I really, well, and I don't want to be frustrated. So I have learned that when I define a project, one of the best things I can do is define, all right, how many images do I want in this project and what is the size of the image? Because there's nothing worse than making a bunch of images and realizing that, oh my gosh, I want to print these really big. Oh, so now what do I have to do? Recreate them all? Ugh, I don't want to do that. So I try to define, like, it's the same with editing, right? If, if, if I go somewhere and I come back and I just take an edit through my images, and editing meaning culling, like we were talking about. Right. If you don't know what you're culling for, how do you edit? Right. So if I know that I wanted 25 of these images, well, what I was editing there was locations first. So I defined, all right, 25 locations, 50 images, because that's how big the panel. I just find, all right, I want to make sure that I can print these more than four feet. So these are going to be large. And I needed to just say, you know, this is still an exercise in color. So if at the end of six weeks, I want to take this somewhere further, that's fine. But let's define the project so that you can move on and do other things. And it also it gives me a sense of urgency. It allowed me, because one thing I think that I always struggle with is, and I don't, I don't have children. And so I'm sure my life is infinitely less crazy than most people's, but I define these projects so that I can tell other people that I'm working on this project and I give myself a due date so that I have to work on the project. And that enables me to make better choices about how I spend my time. That's really So when smart. someone says, yes, right. When someone says, Hey, you want to go out and do this and this? I go, I do want to, 
but I have this project that I need to wrap up. And so for me, because I have a really hard time saying no to things, it enables me, it sets some parameters so that I can make a decision and say, I would love to do that, but I can't for this reason. But you're also juggling not only your job, but multiple projects simultaneously. Right? Yeah, that's so, the fun part. So what? <laughs> that's the fun part. Okay. So you have some short-term ones, some long-term ones. So you always have something in the in the pot. Exactly, because I don't want to just be working on one project because then if it stalls or I'm not able to do it for three weeks, you know, I want to make sure that if I find two hours and that's kind of my my nice limit, I always think of that when I, because I don't really watch TV and anytime I think, oh, I should watch a movie, then I go, yeah, but a movie's two hours long and in two hours I could go out and photograph something or make a composite or at least try. So two hours, like my nice time frame where I go, that's my decision criteria is like, hmm, all right, I think I could go do something artistic and that's f- more fulfilling to me right. than maybe, um, like I always say, well, I can create content or I can consume content. I really enjoy creating content. It kind of, it's going to make me feel better. So I'll do that instead. Do you keep um, a photo diary? Um, I keep a number of journals. So I, what, 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 how would you define a photo diary? Because it seems like a lot of the, a lot of the concepts that you come up with, at least with people who I've talked to, they, they'll write down ideas, concepts, strategies in a, a diary, and as they're producing the work, they'll sort of think uh, on paper, not just in creating the pictures, but sort of they have to put them down in words in order to sort of crystallize and and manage the concept as they sort of translate it into into the work so is that something that you do yes i think that's so key for it's really key for me because i think i have a really poor memory i always joke with people that sometimes before i give a talk on photoshop or lightroom i'll actually go watch my own video what's beyond that is i will be watching my video and i'll be like i didn't know that I've never known that. And I see myself saying it. I'm like, but I've never known that. Like, I, I can't possibly be saying that. And yet there it is. It's proof, right? So think about all the great ideas we have and all the inspiration that we get, whether it's as we're looking at our phones, if we're looking at a magazine. So the phone is so incredible, right? I mean, here, I've got my device with me all the time. If I see something interesting, I take a screenshot. If I see something in a magazine, I'll, I'll, I'll take a photograph of it. Um, the Kindle, I mean, I used to have to write all this stuff down in a journal, but now with Kindle, when I read books, which I would much rather read a book than watch TV only because, or cinema or a movie or something, only because then I'm the one creating the visuals. When you read a book, it's just words. Not that it's just words, because obviously words are amazing and they're the inspiration behind most of my composites. But when I read those words, I get to make the visual. Like that's, to me, that's exercising my imagination. And so I always underline, and it used to be that I would then write these out in big journals, but now I just, because they're Kindle books, you can just underline them and then you can go on to the Kindle site and you can download all the notes. So now I've got them all in, in Evernote and I can just do a search for something like gloomy or whatever. But I guess the, the bigger point that I'm trying to make is that I can't hold it all in my head and it's too stressful and it makes me too scattered. So it's, a, again, a way for me to compartmentalize this world that we live in where I can take all of this great inspirational content and put it somewhere. It's almost like 
having money and putting it in the bank and only it's better because I can always go back to it. Like I never feel like I have so many projects and not enough time. I never feel like, Oh, I have all this time and no projects. It's completely the opposite for me because there's so many cool things that I've seen that I want to use as a launch pad for something else. Um, and because I've got them all written down in, in essentially what you're talking about, a journal, it just is arranged a little bit. Actually, it sounds a little more chaotic. Yours sounds a little bit better, but maybe I'm no, just not No, no, I'm a member of, 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 that, of that club. We just don't have uh, membership cards. <laughs> okay, okay, of the chaotic journaling <laughs> club. <laughs> well, your, your, your work of your dreams, I think, is very interesting, especially when I look at it in comparison to the other, other work. Um, I'm really struck by it because they, they tend to be of a much different mood. I'll say that. Tell me about those because I, I don't want to impose what my perceptions of it. I'd rather hear you say it, what, how you perceive that body of work differently, not, not just from a visual sense, from a visual perspective, but from a, a, an emotional one. Because you, you, you talk a lot about wanting to evoke emotion with with the work but when you look at that body of work what what do you feel is the linchpin that that uh, that brings them together so all those composites fall under a, a body of work which i call um what i dream and so a lot of them are based on what i dream and this goes way back to college uh, i took a class called altered states of consciousness and we we talked all about dreaming and trying to control your dreams. And uh, I've always had extremely vivid dreams, which I do write down. Um, a lot of them are not super pleasant. So a lot of them are fear-based dreams and they're of creatures and people and a lot of harm and um, destruction. And so I think that what we dream is very important because it, we are trying, I believe we are trying to work through things. And even though I'm not trying to work through maybe something violent or terrible like that, it's, it's just a representation of a thought or something. So I don't take them as, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not, they're just conceptual. I'm not taking a literal translation of my dream but more what has put me in that state to make me feel this way, whether it's um, I'm being attacked or I'm being silenced or someone's after me or, you know, I, a lot of people share that dream where you have to run away and your feet won't move or something like that. So I've always written those down and, and kept track of them because I think just, just as photography can help you, like you said, connect the dots these dreams can help me connect the dots in how I'm feeling, but maybe not consciously knowing that I'm feeling that way. So a lot of times I will take a mixture of the dreams and of words that I've read that I've jotted down other authors um, kind of visuals and I've kind of paired them together to create something. And that's what the, what I dream series is all about. And so they do take more effort on my side, it, um, which is absolutely fine, but they, they are more difficult for me and I, I need to do more of them. And I, I just am having a really much more fun time with all, con 
I'll call it like my straighter photography right. than that. What was interesting for me in taking a look at the, the, the body of work was that my experience of them is beyond sort of the aesthetics is that emotional reaction that you're talking about. The dream photographs still are about a, a, an emotion, but it also called on me to sort of impose a narrative on them. And even though I knew that, that, that I couldn't take these literally, the way in which you take these very elements that are not in and of themselves abstractions, but it's the, the putting them together that creates the abstraction. But because the, the elements are so sort of clearly defined in comparison to the other work, I naturally and almost impulsively start trying to impose meaning on them. You got it so far? Yes. Okay. So for me, the question I want to ask you is that when you are putting those things together, do you have to resist the temptation to impose a narrative on there in order for those juxtapositions to make sense? Or do you sort of have to just like resist the temptation in order to make the images happen? Does that, does that make any sense? I think sometimes it's intentional and a lot of times it's subconscious or unconscious so that I'm sure you, I'm a lot of creative people have this like kind of state they get into where everything's just clicking and there's been lots of words to describe it. You know, you're in your zone or whatever. A lot of times when I take a concept that I know I want to work with and I go into Lightroom and I'm looking at my different elements that I have to work with, they start falling into place. And while sometimes I can intellectually in the moment say, oh, this is symbolic of this, or this is a metaphor for this, this being my life and what's going on or what has gone on or what I'm thinking about or what I'm afraid will go on. While sometimes I'm able to see that while I'm creating it, I will admit that even though I start with an idea, I think sometimes as I travel down that road and get fully immersed in the process, sometimes that road can make a sharp turn. And I have found that I just need to let it make that turn. Because if you, if I don't and I hold on too tight to the inspiration and the meaning that I thought I was going for, then I don't find the image to be as successful as if I just say, well, okay, all right, I don't see the relationship right now as to why I want these two elements together. But in hindsight, when I look at them, or actually when, when close friends look at them, it seems like they know immediately why I put some <laughs> elements together. But I don't, I don't always see it as I'm walking through it. And, and, you know, it could just be that I'm reading into thing, it, reading things into it after the fact, just like the viewer is going to read, read into it because they're going to take their own experiences and they might see something and get something completely and react completely differently to the image than what I intended. But that's not, that's just the way it is. I mean, that you, I can't control that. I can put something out there and then however other people interpret it, that's up to them and their cultural experiences and their life experiences. So You have access to some amazing, talented people, not just at Adobe, but in your travels and so when it comes time for you to share your work, are you uh, a reluctant sharer? 
Uh, it depends on what stage of the work it is. But no, I don't, I don't think I'm reluctant. No, I, I'm pretty thin-skinned. So I would say that while I am creating the work, I want to share it to a smaller group of people who's, um, who's, who, who I know will always support me, even if they don't find my work successful. Because if you say to someone, you know, look, I support you and I support your creative process and I support anything that you make, but they don't have to like it. Like it doesn't have to resonate with them. And if you can separate those two things, then I can ask people for their feedback. And even if it's all negative, which is fine. I mean, that's what like criticism, everyone thinks it's always negative and it can be, criticism can be positive as well. It just needs to be constructive. That's all I'm asking for from, from this closer group of friends. While I'm in process, progress with a body of work, you know, what would you do differently? Or what do you see or what don't you see? Or is it resonating with you? Is it not resonating with you? And then because I know they still support me, they're not going to, they're going to tell me the truth in a non-malicious, constructive way. I so love, all I, yeah. I love the way that you define them, that saying that they support you, but they're, even if they don't like the work. And I think that's, because people always say, well, it just needs to be constructive criticism, and that's not enough. But the way you defined it is golden. That's a, that's a great takeaway. Because then they, they know it. It, it. it goes two ways, too, right? I can, I can then tell someone, hey, you know, this image really works, and it's so powerful, and it, it does all this stuff to me. And this work, I don't, I don't get that feeling. So, so then they can say, okay, well, Let's take so let's take a look at what what's different between these two pieces or body of work and and then it's not a negative it's a this one is incredible let's find out why so that you can infuse this one with that same whatever magic it is right well my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore and it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered so who would that one photographer be and why. I would love to recommend Keith Carter. Yes. I have loved his work for so long. And trust me, it's very difficult for me to recommend just one person. I've had so oh, many wonderful photographers influence me. But Keith's work, I think, uh, I took a class from him a few years ago. I, I always try to take a class. And I think it's so funny that people always go, what are you taking a class for? And duh, because I don't know everything. Like, Photography is like this lifelong creative process. We can always learn more. I mean, if anyone expects that they're going to go to school for a year and learn everything about Photoshop, that's or about anything about photography, that's that's a that's going to be a tough one because I'm still learning that at my age. And and with Keith, he gave me permission to do my own work and to to have faith and trust in what I see. And because a lot of times I. I was getting really negative about, you know, I wasn't shooting the big stories. I was making pretty pictures. And then the other day I was on Instagram and I was flipping through and I followed this one woman who has four yellow labs, which is crazy. But it's just, it brings me joy every time I see these dogs and it's just crazy, right? So I thought, wait a minute, if, if the duration, the longest duration that I spent on any one image today on Instagram was something that brought me joy, 
maybe my photographs, maybe that can be their purpose. Maybe it doesn't have to be a social statement or something bigger. Maybe it can just bring someone joy. And Keith's work has always brought me joy. And I think that's, and I might be wrong. I, I don't mean to speak for him, but I believe that's why he photographs. He, he sees the joy in everything and it doesn't all have to be in focus. And, and yet it's, it has so much impact and yeah. So that's it. And he's a lens based artist and that I love that because then it takes so many people have like, they want to argue if I'm a photographer or not because of what I do. And it's, it's like, I don't know. Let's just get out of these boxes. Like the world is evolving so quickly. I don't think we need to stay in the last century's definitions of things. I think it's time we kind of recreate and just become artists and creatives and people who are trying to tell stories and share things with other people. Yeah, Keith is awesome. The two things I love about Keith, one are his photographs, and two, just listening to him talk. I know, he's wonderful, and he's a fabulous musician, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for the recommendation, and thank you for your time, and I really enjoyed talking with you. I just can't thank you enough. It has really been my pleasure. Thank you. Help The Candid Frame to continue bringing you great conversations with some of the world's best photographers. You can do this by supporting our Patreon effort by committing as little as $5 or more a month. When you do this, you not only help us to meet the cost of production, but provide us the time and resources we need to bring you conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame thank you thanks to julian for sharing her time and story with us you can find out more about her and her photography by visiting jcost.net forward slash photography and to watch some of her adobe tutorials visit jcost.com to be the voice that introduces the episode like Marty Stricker did this week, just send us an audio file recorded on your phone, tablet, or computer saying something like, this is Miles Morales from New York City, and this is The Candid Frame. Say it at least a couple of times so we have a take to choose from and include three to four seconds of silence with your voice to help us clean up the audio. And make sure to include a link to your website, blog, or Instagram feed when you send it to info at thecandidframe.com. And if you want to get a sense of my teaching style, if you're considering attending one of my workshops, check out my YouTube channel where I offer critiques and evaluations of photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. You can check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. You can purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code PORELLO40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you've been hearing on the show, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast Store, or anywhere you find and listen to podcasts. And if you write a review on a blog post, let me know and send me a link because I would really like to thank you on air. Thanks to Dennis Thibault for his five-star review. 
You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Rosemary L. Borton and David Kevin Weaver for their recent contributions. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download The Candid Frame app. It's available for both iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandorframe.com. And we also have an Alexa app, so if you have one of those smart devices, download the skill and listen to the show that way. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.